Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. After the apocalypse, a pandemic survival story. Season 3, Episode 4, Hoodies. A rider in black stops hard on the gravel road. A well-used flat-bottom van shoe slaps the ground and takes his weight. The big, knobby back tire bites and slides before grinding to a halt. Dust rises. He dismounts from the bike with the fluidity and grace of an athlete, lays it down gently on the shoulder, and stands up straight. He is hard and lean from both his youth and his months of riding. An observer might refer to Zane as a man, or perhaps just as easily a boy. He was in that early twenties, no man's land of physical maturity in conflict with rapid psychological change and growth. Traditional labels of maturity were unsatisfactory identifiers for describing this stage of a man's life. Society had always struggled with the poor business of equating age to maturity, and in these times of turmoil, the labels applied even less. Chaos and catastrophe are great levelers of society. Zane had been in good shape to begin with. He had always been athletic. He wasn't big enough for football or skilled enough to stand out at any of the traditional school sports, per se, but he always enjoyed playing. He was a middle-of-the-pack athlete on the track team. He worked hard enough to earn a varsity letter, but lacked the innate talent to stand on the podium with the winners. He was a good ultimate frisbee player and enjoyed those long days in the bright sun of the soccer pitch with his friends, chucking the disc and chasing it down. His foot speed compensated for any size disadvantage, and his persistence made up for lack of technical skill. More than anything, Zane had a good feel for how the human body worked in sport, and since he could see no realistic path forward as a player, he found another way. Zane directed his passion towards a degree program for athletic training at Tullahoma State Technical College. He could make a career out of patching up the gifted athletes and stay close to what he loved, but... That was back then, in that other world. Things were different for him in the here and now. These weeks of riding patrol circuit for 
The Collective had molded his youthful frame, sanded it down, and leaned him out. His ability to ride was second nature now. It was another irony of the apocalypse that Zane, the average athlete, might just very well be the best mountain bike rider alive. He could move like a demon on the trails when he had to, and he could climb just about any hill, regardless of the surface conditions or steepness. He could descend equally well at high velocity without fear of crashing. There wasn't much he couldn't do on the bike, and that came in handy. A scrawny gray squirrel dashed between the brambles that clustered around the hilltop, Blackberries in a low cluster hunkered down and clung for life against the storms that came down the valley. With an offended chitter at Zane, the squirrel left its own little cloud of dust drifting sideways towards the river and disappeared under the thorns. It hadn't rained in a couple of weeks since that big washout earlier. The weather seemed weird now, as if traumatized in the same way humans had been. It was a traumatized world, a world in transition. Zane reached up with one practiced hand and removed his protective glasses. He reached under his chin and pulled off the matte black bike helmet. He rubbed his short, spiky hair, enjoying the feel of his fingers on his scalp. He held the helmet and considered it. A stenciled circle and starburst graphics stood out like a sponsor's logo, which, in a way, it was. He thought it would look cooler, with a flaming skull like the tattoo that emblazoned the ropey calf muscle of his right leg, but that wasn't his call. Mac and the collective leadership made that call. With summer coming on, it would get hot wearing a helmet. He'd have to think about that. He could always just ride without the helmet, but knew he should protect his head. He'd seen enough head injuries in his studies to know how important that protection was. Especially now, without access to advanced medicine, a head injury would be a bad thing. He recoiled from the thought of those nerds back at the collective trying to perform crude brain surgery with their soldering irons. He wouldn't put it past them. The nerds were pretty smart, but he suspected they weren't as smart as they thought they were. He preferred being out here on the edge, riding patrol. It gave him exercise and sun and freedom. Sure, he occasionally had to deal with hostile outsiders, but they had that process pretty much down to a science. And, of course, there was always a bodily risk of crashing his bike. As good a rider as he was, things happened fast. And he wasn't always able to react perfectly at high speed. Like that time a low-hanging branch in his blind spot had unceremoniously knocked him out of the saddle, like a medieval knight in the jousting list. Random chance might step in. And there was nothing he could do about that. But it was all worth it to him. He'd much rather be out here in the fresh air, riding the edge, than in the collective data hub hunched over a keyboard. 
This was something he was good at. This was something he could do that added value to the collective. It provided a certain independence and gave him a sense of purpose. What was it those career counselors always said? Choose a job you love and you'll never have to work a day in your life. Out here, he could do what he loved. He'd go crazy if he had to stay inside all day. He knew the work the nerds were doing was important, but he didn't think he could do that. But he could ride the periphery and protect them as they worked to create a new world. Zane hung the helmet on the bike saddle and hooked the glasses into one of the airflow slots. He shrugged off his pack. He squatted on a thin slab of exposed fieldstone that upthrust out of the hill like the prow of a buried ship and pulled out his field glasses. He took the binoculars out of their plastic case and wiped the lenses carefully with a lens-cleaning cloth. He focused on the city, scanning the river, the roads, past the focal point that they had built in the plaza in front of the courthouse. The kaiju said that these structures focused the energy of the dead and would amplify their singularity, help with the transition when the time came. Zane didn't understand much of what the kaiju said, but at least the kaiju had a plan. He scanned up the brick facade of the tall apartment building to see if they were still there. His inspection paused when it reached the top. On the roof, there was motion and the glint of reflection from something glass in the low morning sun. The outsiders were still there. He could make out three of them now, and a dog. He would need to report back to the Collective. It was a low-threat-level incursion, but rules were rules. The hardware nerds were working on extending the mobile mesh network out to the edge, but they only managed to extend the network out to the campus perimeter so far. It took time. They needed to budget resources, and the primary focus was on the Singularity Project. That was okay. Zane always looked forward to a ride. On a nice day like today, he could push his way over the dusty gravel road back to the base in under an hour. The road sped by, a gray-brown blur as Zane crouched low into the descent off the back of the hill, crouching behind the saddle to keep his weight off the leading wheel. He was probably doing thirty-five miles an hour. The bike's suspension piston as he skimmed protruding rocks and potholes. He floated through a tight line around the sweeping corner, barely touching the ground. With the handlebar tightly gripped in his strong hands, he felt the road, like an extension of himself, projected through the spinning tires and the bouncing frame of the bike. God, he loved this! He felt a warm cocktail of endorphins and the joy of it as a terrain flew by and he ate up the ground. He feathered the rear brake and leaned into the tight turn at the bottom, causing a controlled skid that conserved momentum and slingshot him out over a hump and into the air. 
He grinned as time slowed down. He floated for what seemed like minutes in the air and landed with a gratifying thump of rubber on the road, crossing only to shoot up and out the other side. He was halfway up the next hill before he had to stand up in the saddle and push. His legs began the fast cadence of pumping, side to side in perfect cadence, each muscled leg powering up and down like a strike of a snake. Some of the others rode e-bikes to help on the hills, but he liked the real feel of his own power. He flew over the hills with the joy of one who is executing the natural act for which he was born. By the time he reached the outskirts of campus, sweat was beating on his forehead, skirting his eyebrows, and dripping from the end of his nose. A damp patch was growing on his shirt. He was breathing hard but not too hard. The hint of a confident smile rode with him. The roads here were smooth and flat. He could drop into an easy rhythm and cool down a bit under the cover of the bucolic trees. These grand oak trees had been planted 100 years ago to shade the students and faculty in their studious perambulations as they walked from ivory-towered classes to ivy-covered meals. They were starting to leaf out. He slowed down and enjoyed the cool, shaded breezes as they evaporated his sweat. It would be best not to show up at the data center soaking wet. The nerds appreciated his work, but they lived in a different world. The stadium rose on his right as he cycled through the athletic facilities with their gymnasiums and fields. He knew that over there, on the 50-yard line of that field, that they had built the very first focal point structure from the bones. At first, it seemed an unnecessary task and grisly work, but the Kaiju said it would help. In the end, the process had served the necessary sanitary purpose of isolating the dead, and it had surprisingly become an act of closure as well. It was an almost religious act. It was positive and useful, a literal act of sorting away the old and getting on with life, a mental transition from the old world of the boomers to the new world that was being ushered in by the kaiju. He swung around a traffic circle and into the broad parking area of the science building. It was all quiet. The world was quieter now. He liked that. His wasn't the only bike in the bike rack as he guided it in between the pipes. There were others, mostly cruisers and e-bikes, that were derelicts from the old campus bike share program. It hadn't taken the nerds long to hack that app and repurpose the bikes to serve the collective. He didn't need a chain or lock. That was a vice of scarcity that plagued the old world. There was no theft now. Zane knocked some dust off his cargo pants and pulled the hood of his black sweatshirt up. He took one last wistful look at the beauty of the outdoors and turned to mount the granite steps into the building. Nix reclined on a yoga mat 
that had been draped over one of the marble benches in the rotunda. She had a tablet in her lap and was concentrating deeply on something. She looked up at Zane and smiled. The fearsome warrior returning to the fold. Zane paused momentarily, needing to get used to talking again. Yeah, need to report to Mac. He returned the smile. Know where he is? Zane liked Nix. She had a cute smile. I think he's back in 112 with Oz. He moved towards the inner door, but stopped, remembering something. He reached into the pack he was carrying and pulled out a pair of bright pink Crocs. Got something for you. Wow, those are camp. Thanks so much. Nix gushed. Zane shrugged and felt warmth in his face. Sure, let me know if you necessito anything else when I go back out. He continued on through the door. His old van slapped softly on the tile as he kept his eyes on the door numbers and listened for voices. Mac and Oz were behind a desk at the back of 112. The room had been converted to a field operations command center of sorts. There were maps on the walls and piles of inventory on the tables. Zane dropped his pack knocked lightly on the door frame and approached, feeling slightly awkward. Z, Mac said, straightening up and extending knuckles for a fist bump. Good to see you, brother. Welcome back to the wolf den. Zane nodded in response. Mac was a big guy with thick legs and torso. He had been a tackle for the football team before it all happened. Now he ran... Security for the kaiju. He wasn't a bad guy, but you had to be careful around him. I have a report, Zane said businesslike, standing with his hands behind his back. Shoot, Max said. Outsiders left him in Clayville this morning. They came down the river road from the northeast. How many? Mac asked in a more serious tone. Looks like only two, a man and a woman with a dog, probably boomers. Zane paused, waiting for Mac to digest that. He had learned to be parsimonious with his words when reporting in and not to tell stories. They harmed? Mac asked. Looks like it, Zane replied. At least one rifle. Most are armed these days, Mac said with an air of expertise. Boomers like to kill stuff. Anything else? They camped on the roof of the building where Rabbit has been living. Looks like they got the rabbit. They kill him? Mac asked, surprised. No, I don't think so, but they had him with them on the roof. Mac walked over to a map on the wall and stared at it for a long moment. Okay, take an hour, go clean up, resupply, and have the gearheads clean your bike. Then get back out there and watch. If they head away from the base, let them go. If they start moving towards us, collect them. Will do, Zane said. No problem. Do you want someone to go with you? Nah, I'm good. Okay, be safe and let us know if you need help. And then, as an afterthought, Mac continued. Kaiju says he's making progress. It won't be long now. Zane didn't respond. He wasn't a true believer like some of them. 
he didn't see any real harm in them working on their pet project, but he wasn't 100% bought in. He was happy enough to do his part riding the edge because that suited him. He'd let them worry about the future. Mac put his left hand on his hip and stretched out his right arm at a 45-degree angle with fingers splayed and said, To the singularity! Zane always thought the salute looked more like a bad I'm a little teapot caricature than a singularity symbol, but he responded in kind. Mac got weird about the kaiju's mission, and it was best to humor him. After respectfully returning the salute with a nod, Zane pivoted to the door, grabbed his pack, and strode down the hallway. He was glad to be on the team, but always felt better once he was back outside. Down the hall the other way was where the kaiju and his team worked in seclusion, cloistered in their inner keep and pursuing the dream of a new world. According to the kaiju, the collective were the chosen ones. They had been chosen by the universe to create a new world, and the kaiju knew how to do it. Who knew? Maybe he was right. One thing was unavoidably true. When the plague came, it swept through the boomers like a scythe through ripe wheat, killing almost all of them. But with the younger student population, the hand of the universe had been more benevolent and more selective. Many more of them had survived than the older generations, and even those who had almost died had bounced back quickly. It was hard to argue with that. They had been chosen. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, my survivor friends. Welcome back. How are you surviving these days? Here up where I live, we are careening headlong into the icy winter months, which of course has its pros and its cons. I mean, not as many bugs when it's so cold out, but... You know, I run cold, so when it gets cold, I need to put on a lot of clothes. 
I need to cuddle intensely with Ollie the Collie because he's very efficient at converting kibble into BTUs. And in the last couple weeks, I have been interviewed on two other podcasts. So if you want to hear me being interviewed about how the After the Apocalypse sausage is made, then check out these two shows. The first one is the Successful Screenwriter Podcast, and that is available at thesuccessfulscreenwriter.com. Jeff and I recorded this in June, but it was just published last week, so it's available now, and you can go listen to it. I listened through many of his shows over the summer when I was out training on my bike, and I really liked this show. Jeff interviews insiders and deconstructs how screenwriting works. So the podcast is definitely, this podcast is definitely a valuable resource for my friends who are fellow writers out there, which I know we have a lot of fellow writers listening to After the Apocalypse. The second interview that I did, which came out last week, was with our friend Dylan. And Dylan is a fellow writer and member of our Survivor Facebook group and our community. He started his own new show called Dylan's Writing, or Dylan is Writing, on Spotify. And I know, from my analytics, I know that many of you are Spotify listeners, so trot over to Dylan's show and give it some love. If you like these kind of interviews, I've got a few more that I put on the members feed that you can get if you subscribe. If you would like to interview me for your podcast or any other kind of media thingy, I'm a decent communicator for an introvert, a solid B+, and I would uh, love to talk to you. I'd love to talk about the art, so don't be afraid to reach out. So that's that's that. Go download, listen to those two shows, and moving right along, I watched a movie called Forbidden Planet from 1956 last week, and I will give you my thoughts, but I'll try not to go as deep down the rabbit hole as the giant ant lecture from a couple weeks ago. Now, I had never seen this movie, but I knew that it was constantly referenced in science fiction discussions as one of the foundational works of the genre. So I figured, what the heck, I'd give it a watch, fill in that gap in my library of experiential know-how, and I was able to find it, find this forbidden planet, streaming for free on one of the 5,287,392 cable services that lurk in the demonic hellfire of my smart TV. A little too smart, if you ask me, Sonny. It's a movie of its time, and not to offend any priests of the canon, but yeah, it doesn't age particularly well. <laughs> so I guess the reason it is off-sighted in sci-fi movie conversations is that it had many firsts for its time, and had many of these uh, firsts on the big screen. It was the first movie to show humans traveling in a faster-than-light spaceship, and it was the first to have the whole movie set on another planet. I did notice that these faster-than-light faster pods... So here's the thing. when they're So this is the opening scene. They're in, they're in hyperspace, I guess, right? And they're going to come out of hyperspace, so they have to go over in the corner and stand in these pods 
while they exit hyperspace. They don't call it hyperspace, but faster than light travel. And I noticed that these FTL pods that they stand in while exiting, they look suspiciously like transporter pods. So the age of this movie makes it likely that this was something that Gene Roddenberry saw in the in the theaters. And it did have that sort of early Star Trek, the original series feel to it. And it also had a bit of an original Twilight Zone feel to it, uh, which tells me that all this space sci-fi zeitgeist was just bubbling around at the time. And this was one of those man- early manifestations of that. So in that way, it was a precursor. And unlike some of the other old movies that I have talked about, this is not created from a novel or a short story. This was a movie treatment from the start, so chalk one up to the screenwriters. See that? I did a call back there. Did you see that? Yeah. What struck me about this movie was how it was a space sci-fi movie, but at the same time pulled themes from war movies and TV shows it had that sort of post-World War II feel to it. I mean, at times it felt like Mikhail's Navy, an episode of that, or a, or a Mr. Roberts movie. So another thing I noticed was how impressed everyone in the movie, in the cast, was with the special effects. It's very self-aware of its own special effects. These are specific scenes to show off the science fiction wonders and they all sort of stop and pose with the special effects like, hey, look at this. Isn't this cool? Look, huh? And it was, you know, it was like there was a couple of nerds that were trying to make a cool sci-fi movie and these Hollywood producers kept putting other stuff in. They do this whole side story of the space sailors getting drunk, which I don't know where that came from. It's like a McHale's Navy episode. And then they do this pervy professor's daughter storyline, you know, a, a sci-fi trope, but it, it was super pervy. The men have been in the ship for years to get to this planet, so, you know, they're a bit randy. And wouldn't you know it, the professor's daughter is a beautiful young innocent trotting around in short skirts who knows nothing of the wicked ways of men. So, of course, the first thing they try to do is seduce her, right? Of course, because that's what you do when you travel to another planet. And how can we talk about Forbidden Planet without mentioning its biggest star? Drumroll, please. Robbie the Robot. This iconic robot is what you think of. It's what you see in your head when you think robot. I can guarantee you've seen Robbie the Robot. He's on the movie poster, carrying the female lead in his arms, quite menacing. And Robbie was a, uh, a suit. He was a fairly complex, articulated suit that a little guy crawled inside of. Very impressive for its time. He was so popular that he was reused as a prop in like 20 other TV shows and a half a dozen movies in the years since. So you've seen Robbie. So, my friends, in summary, Forbidden Planet, yeah, it's not a great movie, but it was an influential movie and it has influenced Hollywood and sci-fi greatly over the years. You can see that. See how that works. And as always, folks, it helps us all if you can share our show on your social media. Whatever app you are listening to has a share button. So go ahead, poke that, use it. 
Share the show with your friends like, well, like a communicable fatal virus. Yeah, well, it's appropriate. The Facebook group is up to 220 members, so come join that to see what weird stuff I've found out on the interwebs. And I am also working on a website and a newsletter, but I'm a bit at the end of my energy and availability, so, you know, shoot me a line if you'd like to help. You could always use help. And please join our subscription to get early release episodes, ad-free episodes, and extra content. And if you do, I'll send you one of our After the Apocalypse patches. They're cool, perfect for Halloween. If If you hurry up, you can get one by Halloween. Links are in the show notes. Have a great weekend, and keep surviving. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.